Hi, I'm Calvin Ball, your 2023 MAKO President and Howard County Executive, and you're listening to MAKO's Conduit Street Podcast, the source for in-depth coverage of county news and notes from Annapolis. Welcome to the Conduit Street Podcast. This is Michael Sanderson, and I'm recording today with Brianna January from the MAKO staff. Brianna, welcome. Thanks, Michael. Glad to be here. Well, glad to do this with you. Um, today, we're going to talk about school funding, and that's one of the areas in your policy portfolio. And we felt like it made sense to bring some of these things together. I mean, you know, in the big picture, it's the biggest single commitment that we make in across state and local governments in Maryland, um, committing to the school children and K through 12 education. It's in the state constitution as a requirement, mm-hmm. as it should be. And it's it's job one for everybody in the public sector. So um, the state is done with its budget. The locals are getting into theirs. It's time to talk about it, it seems like. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think it's right on the nose and timely. But Michael, before we get into our main topic, I, I did see that you posted some thoughts about Bill Ratchford this week. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about him? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to. Um, so, you know, we we lost a, a couple of titans from, from Maryland politics and policy this week. Uh, Cass Taylor has gotten a lot of attention in the newspapers, and rightfully so. He was the Speaker of the Maryland House of Delegates uh, for a number of years, and and uh, it was a pretty big figure on Maryland politics through his time as a as a delegate and a committee chair and, and as a speaker. But um, I had a personal tie to to Bill Ratchford. Um, he was he was sort of the iconic head of what we now call Department of Legislative Services, but a legislative staffing agency to the General Assembly. In Maryland, it's a nonpartisan staffing entity and stocked with really smart, really serious staff who give layers deep advice to the policymakers in the state legislature. And I think the high station of that entity is largely due to sort of the vision of of Bill Ratchford, who who just passed earlier this week. Um, he was my, my my first job in Annapolis was working with that. It was the Department of Fiscal Services. And um, I got an opportunity to work with the state legislature. And Mr. Ratchford was my sort of boss's boss's boss. Right. So you know, I was the new kid on the block and he was the sort of very much revered director of the whole agency. And I don't know, I'm not alone in feeling this way, but in my 20s, you know, I I sort of needed um, figures to follow and to to sort of figure out who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do professionally. And Mr. Ratchford really played that role for me. I was, I don't know what, I don't know what the right word is, but I was almost awestruck by his memory and his capacity to talk about things that had happened and to put issues into perspective and distill complicated things into easy to use terms and words and so forth. Um, He had a great skill for doing policy work and was a consummate professional. And 
I think that had a great deal of effect on me and I'm sure dozens and scores of other professionals around the Annapolis policy scene. Uh, so great memories, spending time working for him and with him. Um, I outkicked my coverage on a few things, got a chance to work side by side with the big boss. And uh, those are memories that I will really cherish. He was a really special guy, meant a lot to a lot of us. Well, it really sounds like his legacy on Maryland politics and how we do policy as a state just cannot be overstated. Thank you for sharing that with our yeah. listeners, Michael. Oh, ha- happy to happy to do it. Um, he was he was a really big deal. So, uh, anyhow, um, I consider myself a disciple and happy to do that. <laughs> um, so <laughs> let's let's talk about about school funding issues. Um, you wrote a piece on our Conduit Street blog this week that I would uh, we'll we'll put a link into the show notes this week that kind of does a little bit of a deep dive on a couple of bills and puts some of these decisions from the legislative session in focus. So for folks who want the the deeper version, uh, we'll link to that and you can read through it. But I thought you and I could talk about it a little bit with maybe a little more salt and pepper commentary than than we can necessarily get into on the blog site. The the podcast lends itself mm-hmm. to that a little bit. So uh felt like yep, the time was right to bring school funding back on the pod. It's a big topic and uh we good so there's some useful stuff to get into now, it feels like. Yeah, so, that's that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, where we stand big picture in in the annual fiscal calendar is the state legislature wraps up its 90-day session. And, and typically, including this year, they put to bed the state budget. So the state budget is passed. Um, there are some other fiscally related bills that the governor will sign into law and they will make the whole fiscal plan come together. So the state's basically done. The counties are really just putting together their budget for the next fiscal year. And in Maryland, all of our gov- governments are in a July 1 to June 30 fiscal year. So you spend the springtime getting your ducks in a row so that July 1 kicks things off in an orderly fashion. Um, f- funding schools is an enormous part of the mission that counties have to mm-hmm. accomplish as part of doing their budgets. But it's it's really not the same. Funding schools is not the same as, I don't know, your record park department come to the county counselor, or the county commissioners, and they, they plead for, we'd like to do this new initiative. It's going to cost this many dollars, but here's why we think it's worth the investment and so forth. And county leaders weigh those kind of requests all the time. Education's different. And a lot of it starts with the state in law and in the budget. So that's why we're here, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. It surely is different. And that's why it is worth unpacking a bit here on the pod. There are lots of layers to what's going on and what's happened in this particular legislative session. And what that then means for uh, fiscal year 24 is education funding. Um, Of course, our listeners are familiar with the role that counties play in school funding. You mentioned earlier, Michael, that we fund a lot of K through 12 education. I mean, it makes up the bulk of county budgets for pretty much every jurisdiction. Um, But the state has a lot to say about how much we fund, um, what aspects we're funding of of education, uh, specifically what programming counties are responsible for under the blueprint. I mean, it's a lot of interesting things here that we don't see in other areas of, of local funding, um, that the state has a strong hand when it comes to education funding. Mm-hmm. And so we're about three years out of out of the 10-year Kerwin Blueprint plan. 
Um, for those keeping track, that means that we're starting to get into things like um, developing possible outcomes and measures for what successful implementation will look like down the road when we're looking back. Um, it also means that we are coming into the ramp up with blueprint funding increases from both the state and the locals. Um, so, yeah, where, where does that leave us? I mean, it's, yeah, I mean, it's a tough. Uh -huh. yeah, it's it's a big ambitious plan, and and for those who you know, for our uh, our our folks who are new to to Maryland government, you know, we have we have dozens of new elected leaders in county government who are doing their first county budget, and it is Very jarring. True. It's jarring yeah. that your commitment to K through twelve education in most counties is more money than you spend on everything else put together. Combined, so it's not yeah. just a big line item. It's sort of like, well, here's your first like 54 cents on the dollar. Boom. All right. That's done. Yes. <laughs> and you know, as, as, yeah, as, as you, we kind of get into it, you know, it's, it's, it, it's really the, the school systems have a great deal of autonomy in the, the manner in which the dollars are spent. Um, you can, you can program into some big categories. A lot of counties don't even do that much, but it's for the most part, the state law dictates, you know, the, the county must do a or B. So like, maybe it's worth walking mm -hmm. through that just like at the, at the basic level. Yeah. Yeah. So that A or B really is between the county share of blueprint funding, or um, if, if it's higher then the maintenance of effort, basically the same amount of per people funding as what the county did last year. If that's higher then then that is the, the local um, requirement for a year. So with blueprint implementation, we're seeing that additional layer, um, that additional look back from the state of which of those is higher, and then basically bottom line, that's that's what you've got to fund. Right. Um, yeah, yeah, but I mean, of course, over time, you know, the the local share blueprint will become the driving requirement overall. I mean, it's it's not going to take long. Um, I would say for some much sooner rather than later that that blueprint figure takes over MOA for sure. Right. And so we're, we're using the word blueprint as the sort of that's become the Annapolis shorthand for the whole series of education funding programs for the most part ramped up and set new targets that we're going to get to over a period of time. The blueprint is the overall word for all these different state laws that say, you know, we're going to do these various, we're going to, we're going to count the kids in this way and fund mm -hmm. them accordingly. We're going to send these resources to the school systems to make sure that they can tend to our students who have special needs. We're going to, we're going to make sure there are extra resources in some schools where there's a specific concentration of poverty um, mm -hmm. with expectations in the school systems for um, we want to make sure there's a, you know, there's a, a career track for teachers and educators who are in the schools um, and, and to, you know, reach a, a minimum threshold of what we pay teachers, but also have a, a forward looking advancement track for professional educators, all right. these things coming together at various times as the moving parts happen over the next 10 years. Uh, but I think you're right that it, the calculation is we split a lot of those programs into state a state portion and a county portion, you tally up the county portion and say, county's got to at least do its share of all this stuff. And over time, 
the county share of that big ambitious plan is going to become a bigger number than whatever you had been doing before. So, so that's what's yep. happening over the, ne- the next few years ahead. Yeah. Which is definitely imaginable for our listeners. I mean, we're talking about a huge omnibus reform um, to how we do public education. And, and like you said, Michael, everything from how we're funding and counting kids to the actual programming that we want to offer in schools and career um, opportunities for both educators, but also students themselves. So we're, we're talking about a lot of funding that's going to be really flowing. Um, but I think it's interesting this year in particular, as we're starting to hit that peak with, with blueprint implementation, and we're kind of moving into that next phase, we're no longer planning, we're implementing. But this year was really a quirky year when it came to school funding. Um, and <laughs> yeah, like a couple bumps in the road on the way to what ended up being a reasonably smooth implementation, but a couple bumps on the road. And I think, you know, it's sure. worth talking about here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we could ask what happened, but I think it would be easier to ask what didn't happen. <laughs> um, so you mentioned, Michael, that the blueprint um, does require that we kind of look at how we're counting kids for compensatory education, um, which for listeners that, that might not be as familiar, it's basically extra add-on funding for most at-risk students. So those that are the lowest um, levels of our socioeconomic uh, uh, rings in Maryland, those that because of um, community or prior education experience and history, they're most at risk for falling through the cracks. So yeah. really the first hiccup with, with school funding this year was that we started to do um, that new way of counting as, as mandated under the blueprint. And so the blueprint said that we should look into the best way to count kids, not just those that are receiving low and no cost school lunches, which is what we've been doing for, um, right. well, as long as I can remember, <laughs> known um, as the farm count, some listeners might might remember it being called. Um, but this year, for the very first time, the Department of Education also looked at Medicaid enrollment for our public school students and basically compared that data to those farm students, those students receiving reduced or no cost uh, school meals. And which makes a lot of sense in how you would do it, right? You'd think that if they're enrolled in CHIP or Medicaid, that they probably are some of those most at-risk students and should be counted for compensatory education. But it was a shock. I don't think that anyone expected that the result would be um, that the department found an additional something like 110,000 kids. I mean, Everyone was prepared for finding more, obviously. That's the whole point in doing this comparative second count. Um, But we're talking about a lot of kids. Yeah. yeah, So across the state, it's about 110,000 that now are, are, you know, counted as compensatory education um, recipients, if you will. So we're, we're talking big money. Right. Because, because most of the elements of the whole blueprint basically say we need to fund our school systems based on the student count. And in particular, these categories of students like the compensatory ed population, but you know, these, mm-hmm. these low income students, we know that they're harder to teach, they're harder to reach. And so you need extra they need wraparound services. Students. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. so it's just, I mean, it's, it's just anticipating what the business of education is going to require but when you identify that many more of those kids who are eligible for that count, 
you've triggered, you know, sort of one of the components in, you know, dollars per pupil times this extra category mm-hmm. of pupils, an extra hundred thousand kids plus um, times, you know, a, a bag of money for each of them turned into pretty big shock in school funding. So the state ended up being asked for more than I think anybody expected. Like when, you know, when we left mm-hmm. town last April last year, and there were probably forecasts for what the FY24 budget would look like, I don't think anybody had a penciled in number that was as big as what it ended up being. Yeah, definitely. And and our, our listeners should be reminded that compensatory education is a shared cost. It's not just the state putting up money. It's also the counties. Um, so right, right. A, a big twist that came early this year, very early in session, really. So there was time, um, as you just noted, to to address it and to respond to that. Um, but about a month after that uh, revelation, there was another twist. And, and this time it was about calculating local wealth, which um, is a huge factor in how we calculate the the local and state share of our public education funding. And basically MSDE said that there was incomplete income tax information. So their initial local share calculations back in um, early fall or late fall, early winter, shall I say, were found to be inaccurate because of that. So I mean, we're talking in a month and a half, (laughs) a month and a half's time, we've had two major shocks to uh, the funding formulas and to what's expected from from the counties. Um, but but it really took until after the budget was in for that oversight to truly be understood completely. Yeah. Um, and and right away, whatever numbers county governments were working off of from those original department uh, drafted uh, local share numbers, they were basically, um, you know, no longer the most accurate. And the counties were already, starting to draft budgets. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was weird. Like you said, this all happened in a pretty short window of time. So we're, mm-hmm. you know, the, the first shoe drops in late January, the budget comes out and the school funding has extra money to everybody except those who are like way, way deep on the inside, crunching these numbers back in October, November, December, whatever, um, you know, who were aware of the Medicaid count. But for a lot of folks, read the mm-hmm. budget and it's like wait there's there's more dollars here than i was expecting Where'd this come from? Happen. yeah right so but that <laughs> yeah, was, there was in the budget flash. right mm-hmm. and then literally over the space of a week or two after the budget was you know printed and delivered on lots of our desks and people like us are rifling through pages online and so forth then we get word actually there's an asterisk by a bunch of this stuff because it looks like the income tax data was not quite complete so we mm-hmm. generated all the wealth stuff, which which basically separates what's the state's share versus what's the county share in each jurisdiction. The wealth data was wrong. And so we had to recalculate all that. And that was going to move numbers around from place to place. Some are going to go up, some are going to go down. And we have to wait to see what the finals look like. And that was its own like second twist, right? Right, right. And then of course, for for listeners that don't keep up with the budget process in Annapolis quite as quite as close as we do at Mako, um, a little bit after that, there was then a supplemental bu- budget that was introduced with additional adjustments to school funding, which actually pretty much had no controversy over that update, no real pause over the increases in spending, over why those initial uh, ref- those initial yeah. drafted figures were wrong. I mean, it it was a really surprisingly smooth process. Um, 
But uh, right, I, I, I agree that it seemed like it, it could be an opportunity for some back and forth, but instead it seemed like legislative leaders received this as just the technical correction that it truly was. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, yeah. basically not a big, not a lot of storm and drong over like merely accepting and receiving the revised figures. They're like, okay, we get it. These are the correct numbers. But, but another layer that we should mention, Michael, is that of course, those figures, those updated numbers also affected disparity grants. And so is it kind of a, a not a third full twist, but all in all, we're talking about just tens of millions moving around um, in a very yeah. short period of time and adjustments right and left, some some whiplash. I think I know a few county budget officers who may have had some whiplash scratching their head over yeah. exactly what the county, <laughs> what the county is required to do um, for for the upcoming school year. Right. So, so we've got these technical issues back in January, February. Um, I, I know dialing back a little bit earlier, we were concerned back in October after hearing about the sort of the you know the student headcount in September of 22, and hearing whispers that there were jurisdictions where it doesn't look like the enrollment has really bounced back to pre-COVID levels. And I know you and I were wondering, are we going to have another year? where the legislature feels like they need to sort of asterisk the student count and, and deal with the, the per pupil funding formulas. You know, if mm-hmm. you know, the number of the number of students is a big part of that. Um, what happened on that front in, in the 21 and 22 sessions, yeah. we spent a lot of time on that. Right. But that, yeah. And really... we spent time on the pod about it too. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We've, we've, we've tried to you know unpack that as a technical issue, but you know, some of our podcast people can't help themselves. They want to hear all those gruesome details. So each of the last two sessions, we had a juicy one for you to try and explain these technical bills, making changes to that maintenance of effort formula this year. Um, we didn't have quite the same roller coaster there, right? Yeah, we didn't, we didn't. Um, so as you mentioned, you know, but there are some counties where student enrollment this last September did prove to still be generally down from pre-COVID levels. Um, and we're talking some of the larger counties too. Um, but of course, and the whole reason why this was such a fix in 21 and 22 is of course, because it the number of students in seats um, does not impact the, the bottom line of what a school is required to, to function, right? You still have to have the lights on, you still have the heater, the right. AC on, you still have to pay the teachers if you're down two students per classroom, regardless. Um, and so- right. Certainly not dollar for dollar, mind, but, right? Right, right, yeah. right. Um, but that was not an issue this year. I, I know that the boards of education and the superintendents were um, a bit more working the issue uh, still this year than, than um, we were at Mako, but it didn't pan out to be a conversation at all, really. Yeah, I, I think yeah. I think it might be that these issues are connected. That um, you know, just talking about the the extra funding that showed up in the budget this year, particularly from the newfound 
students to be counted for compensatory education. We look at the Medicaid rolls, we find over 100,000 more students. We say, okay, those are qualified poor kids, and we're going to use that in the formula for compensatory education. And that meant not just extra funding for, you know, pockets of the state where there's deep ingrained poverty, mm-hmm. but pockets in every single jurisdiction. Right. We found more kids who probably should have been eligible for, you know, maybe they just weren't applying for a free or, or reduced price lunch, or or they, you know, didn't realize that they whatever were the eligible. Or, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, for yeah. whatever reason, we found kids who belong in that court category and hadn't been. So that when that has to be, yeah, but I, it's the best hypothesis. Like, yeah. It feels to me like that. That's probably what happened here is those extra dollars. A lot of them from the state, a lot of them will be anticipated to come from the counties. Those new dollars are going to end up, you know, with, with schools receiving funding increases and, and, and a pretty material amount of funding increases. So it wasn't quite as maybe urgent a cry as back in 22 or 21 when you had some schools like, well, we're about to lose, you know, we'll have fewer dollars this year than last year mm-hmm. just because the student count is wonky, right? Right, right. Yeah, we so don't think those kids are gone forever. Wonky, yeah. We're not laying off teachers. Right, right, right. Yeah, that, I mean, that has to be the best hypothesis yeah. <laughs> as to as to to why it wasn't as big of a deal this this session. But that really does bring us basically to the fact that per people funding is back on track. Um, the last few years, it was, you know, fixes because of the down enrollment. This year, with the compensatory extra funding from the state and, of course, the local requirement as well, um, basically, we're back to about pre-COVID levels when it comes to our per-people funding. And so really whether or not those attendance numbers fully rebound, um, you know, come next year or the year after to be seen. But yeah. but I will yeah. note that some of our, our counties are thinking that they might not. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, I mean, there's an interesting like larger question that, that we don't have answers to, but I, and I, I agree with you that so this year basically is sort of a reset. The 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 odd patch over things that happened for each of the last two sessions, for good reason, um, weren't really ultimately required either politically or practically. Uh, so mm-hmm. so we ended up, we end up back at at a pretty straightforward normal number. I, I will say, like what we don't know is, is it possible that Medicaid was sort of temporarily oversubscribed during COVID? Yeah. With with some, that's some a very are, fair question. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I I think um, I, I think if you look at the the health department budget, there's some indications that might be the case. Um, it felt a little bit like a recession with some people um, unable to maintain work or on extended unemployment benefits or or things of that nature. So it, it's possible we'll see the Medicaid roll shrink and then compensatory education student counts shrink a little bit. And we might be back in the same situation where we've got components of the funding formula go down in an environment where the education enterprise doesn't feel like it's really abated or lessened. So, you know, to to be determined whether uh, this this uh, drama continues for the next couple of years. But, uh, you know, I mean, it, it keeps our listeners on their toes. We like that. <laughs> Me as well. <laughs> right. All right. So, so all right, I think that that gets us through basically the state budget and the state's core funding formulas. 
Um, so now let's talk a little bit about some legislation, a couple of bills from the 2023 session. We just put these, you know, put the session into the books a couple of weeks ago. We're seeing the, you know, the governor and the, the presiding officers are doing their sort of show with bill signing ceremonies and talking about things that are going to go into effect this summer, this fall and so forth. So there's a couple of bills that I think are worth talking about because they, they tinker with these school funding requirements in a year where there was a good deal of education attention, right? So let's talk about yeah. a couple of those bills. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I think something that our listeners would be interested in, Michael, is, you know, there was kind of a strange outcome for a bill about local blueprint implementation coordinators. Um, you know, the blueprint right. requires that basically all counties hire these local coordinators um, for a few years, it's I, I think fiscal 25 through 27 or 24 through 26, something like that. It's just mm-hmm. a couple of years mm-hmm. still in the earlier side of implementing the blueprint to basically oversee local implementation, mm-hmm. um, as their title suggests. <laughs> um, right. And and, you know, these are the folks who would directly engage with um, the blueprint accountability and implementation board, engage with the state on behalf of the locals as as they go through the nuts and bolts of implementing the blueprint. Well, this year there was a bill in to more or less take that financial burden off of counties to hire and pay for this quality, top-notch expert type of position of these blueprint coordinators. Um, The bill itself would have basically provided grants to all 24 counties. It would not have been a competitive sort of process. Right. All 24 would have gotten it out front and it would have been to cover those salaries. It was, we're not talking a lot of money in, in the retrospect and, and the greater um, context of, of school funding. We're talking about $150,000 each, um, each year that the coordinators are required to be in that role. Um, right. But really, outside of the money, it was a significant symbol that the state acknowledges the many requirements of the blueprint and is an active partner in its implementation and taking some of the burden off of counties. Sounds great. Sign us up. Everyone was on board. Um, But in an odd twist, which occasionally happens in Annapolis. Yeah, things happen. (laughs) Um, the bill was amended basically to instead split those costs between the locals and the state uh, using our normal foundation formula split um, for education funding. So now it's a shared cost. Again, we're not talking about much in the scheme of things, but interestingly, um, something that did kind of have us scratching our heads with the final version of the bill is that it, it seems to mandate and require that these coordinators be paid $150,000 salaries um, when the original intention of the bill was to provide that as a grant to cover salary and benefits and personnel costs. Um, in our read, it it seems like the intention is now that, that that's the minimum that uh, they have to make a salary um, alone. And so just an interesting process on how that happened. And I think an example of a really well-intentioned bill um, getting caught up in, in the muck. Yeah. I think, I don't know. I think you you and I have have sat there and looked at that piece of the bill and the wording and I like, I'm not sold that it's crystal clear that it means 
that person needs to earn a salary of exactly $150,000 cuz cuz there, there there is a cost of of having an, a professional employee in addition to his or her salary, right? You have fringe benefits right. Right, for someone's health insurance and retirement right. and other things like that. So I mean option B might be that the 150 is meant to cover all of that person's costs. Um, and then maybe I, I, I don't know. It's like somebody higher up than us, <laughs> like this is, this is over our pay grade. Somebody's right, going right. to have to iron this out and basically say the way we're going to implement this, but you know, the state department of education probably will come up with a, a guidance memorandum to say, we read the bill to mean you must do either a or B and mm-hmm. here's, here's how to go about doing so. But you know, from the county's perspective, we supported it as the state coming in to provide this as a grant. The bill got altered to turn it into a split responsibility. So now it sounds like the counties will have some share of those costs as a new funding responsibility over and above whatever their requirement is in the in the blueprint. And right, this isn't right. This is an enormous, it's not an enormous sum of new dollars, but it is still like one more thing on top of the, on top of the pile. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and I will also note that, that there are counties that are already kind of starting that process of looking at qualified folks for this position. Yeah, and I, so I think, I, I think yeah. we've already got the people in place. Yeah, maybe we I think do. Maybe mm-hmm. every single jurisdiction has a person in place. It was the, the process right. in the I original think that it was bill was, was the deadline. Mm-hmm. It was a joint appointment by the governing body and the school board, which is a one of a kind thing itself. But I, I think True. that was a meant to that, that was meant to try and bring the county governments sort of to the table. Like we we don't decide how school money gets spent, but the idea of jointly appointing this person who's going to be the watchdog at the mm-hmm. system level to go and make sure that. You know, this is the school that has that concentration of poverty grant, and they're supposed to be awarding, you know, uh, like wraparound services to these kids and to be doing these extra things. Let's make sure that those services are actually being delivered in that school. That's a level of like, I don't know, I like that word watchdog. It's a, it's a level of, of supervision that the state never really engaged in with the last round of new state funding under uh, under the Thornton plan, which preceded the Kerwin plan. Um, mm-hmm. There were a lot of new dollars distributed and there were a lot of plans sent by the state, by the local systems to the state, but not a whole lot of sniffing around are things actually happening on the ground the way they are supposed to be on paper? So these 24 people were supposed to be jointly hired to make sure that's really happening. And if, if you're a believer in accountability and transparency, then this infrastructure should make you happy independent of however it gets funded. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, But that surely was not the only, the only bill that had our attention this year. Um, you ready to shift gears a little bit, Michael? Yeah, yeah. There's one more bill that I think is worth a few minutes, just some some additional quirks, right? Yeah, yeah. So there's been a bill basically in and out of Annapolis for uh, several years at this point um, to require special education teachers at what we call private placement facilities to more or less make equivalent pay, equivalent salaries as their public school counterparts. So we're talking about those who are educating what would be public school students, uh, but 
those students have needs that are more or less greater than what the public special education um, system in their jurisdiction can accommodate for whatever reason. And so instead they attend private facilities, but for funding purposes, um, they're they're still mostly counted as as public school students. Um, And so their care and their education is still a, a joint shared cost between state and county. Um, I, I won't get into the nitty gritty of how the sausage was made on, on this particular bill this <laughs> this year, um, but what listeners should know is that the final version of the bill seems to say, and I, and I say seems because um, it's unusual even for Annapolis, uh, <laughs> we've seen some strange things, but this is on, on the top of the list, I think, um, and what it seems to say is that the extra cost of the bill, so the extra cost to bring private placement educators up to that equivalent salary as their public school counterparts, um, more or less after those costs get split between the state and local, like I just mentioned, they're then assigned, so whatever that gap is, is assigned directly to county government rather than the schools and the school system. Yeah. I mean, have you ever seen that, Michael? No, I mean, it's it's breaking new ground. I, I think I've never seen anything that reads like that. So, um, you know, we've, we've always, there, there's always been state law that governs the minimum of what each county has to do as its overall commitment to education. And, and then right. we've had the maintenance of effort law that for years and years said in order to get any increase in state funding, the, the county has to maintain its level of funding. They didn't want to see school funding increases by the state turn into tax cuts by the county. So this effort was born to say this extra education fund is going to go for education purposes. You're not allowed to backtrack on your local funding. Um, That got rewritten and toughened up in, in the early to 2000, like 2012, I think. Um, But in, in 2012 maintenance of effort became an absolute mandate. There are a variety of reasons leading up to that. That's a, that can be the uh, the subscriber only extra podcast where you get three hours of me. <laughs> the pot after dark, yeah. <laughs> but um, anyway, we've had state law governing who pays for what for an awfully long time, but we've never had anything with these kind of fine teeth on it that says this particular expense, however we calculate, which I want to talk about because I don't know, but however you yeah. calculate it, this is now an obligation of the county not the local school system but of the county to make the schools whole on their share of it and i've never seen it before and i also don't have any idea how it's going to work yeah i mean you've you've hit the nail on the head i mean how does this work the bill language that was that was passed and and the final um, bill waiting to be signed into law by by the governor doesn't doesn't say it doesn't provide guidance really on how how right. this will work outside of the fact that the Department of Education has to come up with regulations. Um, in a quick turnaround, I'll I'll, I'll include um, because this bill goes into effect for the upcoming school year um, and for fiscal year twenty four. And so, I, I know that I've been fielding questions from from counties about what they can expect. I mean, are they going to get a bill sent from the local school system? Are they going to get a bill sent from the state? Uh, Do they pay, who they pay directly to? I mean, there's a lot left um, 
to really be worked out. Um, but I think that the idea of specifying that this one particular cost in our school systems is not part of the gigantic overall formula that we just spent years rebuilding in, in the blueprint, it's, it's another layer on top, really. Yeah. So, so the mechanics of this are weird. Um, I don't think the data exists today or by this May or June for Mm -hmm. anyone to tell, you know, I don't know, you know, to tell Washington County schools, you have this many kids in these unusual placements and the cost of their care is currently X, but because of this new legislation that's coming, it's going to move to X plus 25%. And that Delta is going to be split between the state is going to pick up this amount and this amount, which is entirely your responsibility County government, um, cause mm-hmm. that's, that's the plain wording of the bill is the county's got to pick up the freight. Um, yeah. so anyway, we'll have to see regs. They'll have to sort this out, but does it turn into some weird thing where every time there's a placement like this, they, they have the provider calculate the bill two ways based on old salaries and new salaries. And, okay. you know, you, you, you back out the, di- I'm, I'm, I'm saying that like, it's silly, but I don't know no, how else I mean, to actually conform to yeah, what the bill requires. I, I mean, Michael, what I've <laughs> what I've heard from from some of our colleagues um, in school leadership is that they think that they're it's going to come down to having to compare pin by pin, basically what you know. So many teachers right. in one placement. I mean, literally looking at individual educators, and then maybe finding a mean of those, that right. range of salaries. Yeah. I mean, right. it's, it's I don't think darts. we've ever done anything like this. Yeah. Right. We're, we're throwing yeah. darts, but it's sort of like, you know, pin the tail on the donkey where we we've got a, we've got a bandana over our eyes. We've been spun around three times now start throwing the darts. So, I, I mean, I guess we'll get it figured out. There was, you know, a, an intermediate version of this bill had the whole thing kicking in for FY 25. So you'd right. have time for regs to come out this fall and everybody to understand what the process would be. And maybe for each school system to work with their providers who, who specialize in this care and everybody to sort of have a plan in time for the budgets being cut in the spring of 24. But when it got accelerated to this current year, um, I think we're just going to have to wing it. And maybe it'll be a, as things go on, go through the year there'll be some weird invoicing process or something. I I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't think anybody does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'll also just note that not only was it accelerated to this fiscal year, but the bill originally um, really had a balanced approach to this and it didn't go through this aspect of it. Shall I say did not go through the usual process of, of public input at a hearing. This got, really, you know, pulled together in the last days of, se- days of session and they rewrote the bill and moved it quickly. Um, yeah. But we'll, we'll find yeah. out in a couple months time. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, we've, we've used these euphemisms. I mean, stuff happens and this, sometimes things do happen like that in the last few days of the 90 day session. I mean, it is uh, just from the point of view of the counties, right? This is the county's podcast and, and we work with our, our leaders in county governments, but it's a big policy shift that I really don't think many people caught was happening mm-hmm. as this bill was moving. I mean, the floor discussion on this bill 
was about what the, the service we're trying to provide and make sure these kids are getting adequate care and these staff are being compensated fairly and so forth. But I don't think if you were listening closely to the discussion on the floor as the bill, the final versions of the bill were being debated, I'm not sure you got a clear picture that this is, by the way, we've completely reinvented how to fund an enterprise in public education. I'm, I'm not sure that was super clear. So, yeah, um, I surely didn't catch it from, from the discussions. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so, okay. You know, stuff happens, a couple bills pass that, that created some, some maybe turbulence in the way school funding is done. And um, I don't know, we're, you know, like, as you mentioned, we're, we're in, we're three years deep or so in unrolling this blueprint. Um, the whole thing is important. It's comprehensive. We know it's going to be very expensive just to do the things that the blueprint already calls for that current law says right. mm-hmm. we're going to start funding this in year four. We're going to start funding that in year six. So the, the price tag goes up and up and up. Um, I guess like what we're left with is if this year, if this year is a guide, are, are we just going to see like more and more requests every year in the general assembly to just add new things on top? And here, yeah. here's, you know, I have a bill, I want to fund things and I'm just going to use the same language as that bill from 2023 to add it on top as a state County split, or maybe even we'll add it on top and we'll just like send the, the County government, the bill for whatever these new costs are. Is, is that, is that where we're headed? <laughs> I, I, there's no way to tell my looking glass does not have that answer right, right. now, but <laughs> if it did, um, you know, we'd, we'd be rich at this point, but um, a lot of strong issues this session, um, a lot of really big issues with, with merit and value. Um, but, but the logistics of, of how we're doing them, I think is really the question. And I mean, it's not like every school funding bill that came in this year was passed. There was surely many more that we weighed in on and, um, a lot of really, I think, productive and, and healthy conversation and debate over, um, really the role of the blueprint and as you suggested all of those agreements made years ago and what it means to be operating in I mean we are operating in a different environment than when the blueprint was was um, was passed you know we've had a pandemic and we are experiencing um, shortages for school staff and all of that good stuff um, but, it's definitely a conversation that I think is being had around Annapolis and that will continue um, to be had, but jury's still out on what, what these particular two bills and and their kind of quirky passage means for the future of school funding. Um, Right. So I, I, I agree that we don't have clarity on exactly what this means, but if you're, I mean, if you're a policy person, it's it's uh, it's informative to learn what happened, but it's kind of tasty to think about, did we set a new precedent? Have we created a new direction? Is this going to be a trend, right? So, right. so I, I feel like that's what we wanted to lead up to in talking about all this. We wanted to bring together conversations that were in motion leading up to session and during session while these bills were pending, while the budget was still in process. Now we've kind of put a pin on the session and wanted to walk through these, but as much 
as anything for the purpose of saying the way these two bills landed is unusual. And maybe that ends up being the form that the General Assembly follows in years to come, which could be pretty alarming for county governments in all candor. If if this ends up being that's the way to pay for new stuff, uh, then I think I think our county leaders will have an awful lot to say about that, like and want a a much more central seat at the table than just uh, as as a passenger. and yeah, and Michael, we've been talking about school funding specifically, but I mean the implications are are wide. You know, this sort of method of um, punting it to to the counties and just billing them directly for X Y Z could be um, surely extended to other policy areas as well. Yeah, I I think I think the the safe projection is that. Even this year, for just for this year, we're going to see some county budgets already being strained by the costs of the blueprint. The, I mean, the phase-in is underway, the ramp-up of these costs is underway, and a number of jurisdictions are being asked to chip in a sizable chunk more than they did last year. And as you mentioned, there's those two calculations, and as the share of the blueprint ramps up more than the cost of living because we're, we're, we want to get up to a higher level of service and expectation and outcomes. So it's going to cost more to do that. The county share is going to go up, up, up. And if you're already like, oh, we're already putting 55 cents of the budget toward education. Oh, next year we have to find an extra you know, like 9% increase for them, even though our revenues are only going to be up 4%. All right, well, roll up your sleeves and figure out how to do it. We're that's going to be happening. We're going to see some counties get super squeezed this year. It's going to be another wave the following year and another wave the following year. So, I mean, I think on the podcast, it could be fair game for us to sit down in in June or July with one or two of our budgeteers, you know, and 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 sort of say like, how how does this look? How you know how does it look if you're if you're kind of maxed out, you've already done the highest income tax rate. You know, where do you go to fund the blueprint? And we're only a third of the way, not even into implementation. So I think, I think, you, you know, know, I love that idea of a future yeah. podcast, but you know what? I'm getting a headache from all this. <laughs> it's a lot yeah, to wrap, wrap my head around in, in an hour's time. It's fair. I know, you know, you know, sometimes you, you go to the, I don't know. It's been a while since I've been in a record store, but you think about buying music and sometimes you see like the parental advisory that tells you there's going to be rough language in the music. Like maybe our podcast needs to have that. Like there will be jarring conversations about funding formulas <laughs> and tax rates and difficult to manage budgets. So parental advisory and you know, not every nerd may want to listen to every single cut on this album. So maybe, maybe that's, you know, not do. a bad idea. Not a bad idea. <laughs> All right. So thanks for joining for the conversation. Um, I think that's the stuff we wanted to to talk through. Anything else to top off with, Brianna? No, I think that we've left our listeners with a lot to ponder and more to come in the future, for sure. For sure. Well, um, thanks again. And, and we'll leave it there for this episode of the Conduit Street podcast. As always, we hope you'll subscribe through your favorite podcast app. That way you'll get all our weekly episodes sent right to you every Friday. You can also follow along on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and of course, the Conduit Street blog. So for Brianna January, this is Michael Sanderson. We will talk to you soon.